Well, good morning, Axis Church. How's everybody doing today? Hey, enthusiastic. I know, I know. Prom was last night. Some of you guys were up till two or three. Some, some of you had a gig like in like Indiana last night, up till two or three or four. Glad you guys are here today. So uh, how many of you know that I like a good deal? How many of you know that about me? Anybody know me well enough to know this guy likes a good deal? And years ago, uh, my dad was the administrator at Mount Healthy Christian Home and Mason Christian Village, and they were going to have a yard sale where all the retired people were going to come together, and they were going to offer items for some cause. And dad said, you should go to this. And so I went to the yard sale looking for a good deal, you know, and I found a nice pair of golf shoes. And they were just my size and and, and I thought, these are, these are some sweet golf shoes. I mean, goodness, something needs to help because, you know, <laughs> I'm not that great at golf. And I thought, well, this is going to be good. And, and they look pretty flashy. They're not the new style where they look a bit more athletic, like gym shoes. They, they were the old style that looked a bit more like I was going to go to prom, actually. And they were a little bit more kind of dressy and kind of had a hard soul. And I thought, this is going to be great. And it's going to really improve my game. And, and so I went out with a friend and we were going to go uh, golfing. And so as we got started through the round, I started to feel like my heel was bruised or something was wrong. And I'm thinking, man, these, these shoes do not fit very good. And, and maybe it wasn't the best idea to get a good deal on these. I don't know. And it started to hurt a lot. And I thought, well, maybe I stepped on something. Maybe I, I put my foot down too hard. And therefore, now my heel is really, really hurting. And I just kept going through the round. And my heel was getting more and more uh, uh, in trouble. I was really in a lot of pain. And I finally thought, I need to stop for just a minute, take this shoe off and see what's going on. Maybe I got a rock or something in there. I didn't know. And I was surprised to see that my sock had a huge hole in it. And so did my heel. Uh, my, the, the bottom of my sock was filled with blood. Somehow there was a nail that was coming up through the heel. And the further along that I walked, the more that that nail was digging into my heel over and over again. Now, when I tell you that story, and when I describe that for you, what happened, I heard you. Some of you guys uh, grimaced out, you know, you grimaced or you winced or you audibly responded with a cringe. And it leads me to this question. I wonder why I don't flinch much anymore when I hear the phrase, Jesus was crucified. I don't grimace much when I hear that, do you? Why, why is it that there's no lump in my throat when I hear that they drove nails into Jesus' hands? Has the story become too old for us? Has time and familiarity sanitized the suffering of our Savior to the point where it doesn't touch us anymore, where we're more moved by a nail in a golf shoe than we are by nails piercing the hands and feet of Jesus? Today, we're going to be reminded about what Jesus did for us, and we're going to learn about the suffering of Jesus in a very interesting place in Scripture. Rather than looking at the New Testament, we're going to go back to the book of Psalms, where we've been for the last several weeks, and we're going to see that love sacrifices. This is a psalm about the suffering of Jesus. Psalm 22 is a prophecy, really, and he goes, David goes between his own life and experience, and then he talks about what Jesus is going to experience as the coming Messiah. 
Verse 16, it says, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. And this prophecy of Jesus came hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented as a form of capital punishment. And the prophecy all through the Old Testament, God is telling us about what's going to happen, about what Jesus is going to do, about what the Messiah is going to be like, about what he's going to do for us. It was like God was giving us little messages to say, I know that you're enslaved in sin, but one day hope is coming. You guys remember the movie Black Hawk Down? It was based on a real story how our American troops went into Somalia and, for, and, and one of our uh, troops, Michael Durant, was taken captive in Somalia for 14 days. And every day when he was confined in Somalia, helicopters from the United States would fly over the spot where they believed he was. And through a loudspeaker system, they would broadcast, hang in there, Michael. We're going to come and get you. Jody sends her love. Hang on. And the message was given by one of his friends so that Michael would recognize the voice. And Michael Durant said that during those two weeks when he was there, he heard that voice every day except for one, and it was a real source of encouragement for him. And over generations in the Old Testament, God was giving us a message, and he was saying, one day I'm going to come, one day I'm going to redeem the world, one day I'm going to I'm going to take you out of the slavery of sin that you're in, and I'm going to free you. And he was giving us messages of hope and encouragement. And from the very beginning of mankind, God knew that we would have a choice to make. Will we choose to love him or we choose to follow our own way? And when we follow our own way, the Bible calls that sin. And the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And the Bible is very clear that that sin has held us captive. That we are not free. We're free to make a choice. But when we made a choice, that enslaved us in sin. And all through the Old Testament, God is saying, one day I'm going to pay for that sin. One day I'm going to redeem you. Oh, and by the way, the way that I'm going to redeem you is that there has to be the shedding of blood. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Romans 6 23 in the New Testament said, the wages of sin is death. And so throughout the Old Testament, God is reminding the people of Israel that there must be the shedding of blood to pay for sin, that in order to free you, there has to be the blood of an innocent lamb or goat. And when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, God told them, you take the blood of a perfect innocent lamb, paint it on the doorpost of your home, and when the death angel passes over your home, you will be saved. And what he was doing was kind of foreshadowing our own salvation through the blood of a lamb. God gave instructions to the Jews. When you come to the temple to worship, they were to bring a lamb or a perfect oxen, or the, and that animal would be slain, and the blood sprinkled on the altar as an atonement for their sin. The Bible made it clear that the blood of bulls or goats was gonna, not going to take away sin, but God was going to atone for the sin of the people for that year. But one day, one day there would be a perfect lamb, and, and that perfect lamb would come and would give his life and would take away the sin of mankind for all time. We would no longer be guilty for that sin. God was conditioning us to know that sin means death. 
You guys remember Pavlov's dog experiments where he would ring a bell and feed the dog, read the, ring the bell and feed the dog, and eventually the dog was conditioned to associate the ringing of the bell with food that was coming. And as soon as the bell would ring, the dog would begin to salivate. And all through the Old Testament, God was conditioning us. One day the Messiah will come. He will free you, and it will be his blood, the blood of an innocent lamb that will help provide for your salvation. Another prophecy of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 reads, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have each gone to our own way, but God laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. He came to save us. I heard about a grandfather who found uh, his little grandson in a playpen, screaming his head off, crying, and lifting his chubby little hands and saying, Gramps, out, Gramps, out. And the grandfather reached out to pick up his little grandson out of the playpen and hold him. But his daughter stopped him and said, no, dad, don't take him out. He's being disciplined. He's got to stay in there. And the grandfather didn't want to go against his daughter's instructions, but the big crocodile tears and the uplifted hands of uh, this grandchild just ripped at his heart. And he stood there thinking about the situation for a while. And finally, the grandfather crawled over the rail and got into the playpen with his grandson. And the, grand, or the daughter came in. And when she saw him there, she saw that he was just in there with her son, just enjoying being there and encouraging him and playing with him there. Jesus saw us trapped by disobedience. And rather than pointing an accusing finger at us or telling us how bad we are, Instead, God came into our world. The Bible says that Jesus became one of us, that he entered into our world, that the Bible says that he really moved into our neighborhood and he ransomed us from our sin. He came as an atoning sacrifice for us. The book of Psalms, verse 49 says, chapter 49 says, no man can redeem the life of another or give God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. In other words, no man can pay for the price of your sin except the perfect man, the perfect Lamb of God who came into our world, who freed us. And the Bible says when Jesus was in Gethsemane, he prayed, my heart is troubled, but it is for this very reason that I came to this hour. And in John chapter 10, he said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. When he was secretly arrested, falsely accused, and sentenced to die hastily, he did it for us. He was scourged, spit upon, punched, shoved, crowned with thorns, mocked with a pretend scepter, and a royal robe was placed upon him, and he was forced to carry his own cross by adversaries that were totally out of control. He was arrested about midnight. And by nine in the morning, they had him nailed to a cross. He was publicly humiliated, crucified with thieves, forced to die one of the most painful and excruciating deaths known to man. The one who was perfect, so full of life, so full of compassion, so full of power and understanding, allowed himself to be stripped of his power, stripped of his dignity, stripped of his authority, and affixed to a cross for all of us. And Psalm 22 is the prophecy that tells us this is what Jesus felt as he died. How many of you have ever heard uh, 
this when they talk about the final sayings of Jesus on the cross. One of the sayings of Jesus is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And how many of you have ever heard it taught that that means that God, that the sin that Jesus took upon himself was so bad that the, he took on the sin of the world that even God the Father could not look upon his son, so therefore he turned his back on his son because he couldn't stand to look at him. Anybody ever heard that taught? It's based on that phrase from, uh, from the New Testament where Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here's a different take on that. You know, in the, the, the chapters and verses in the Bible didn't come out till many, many, many years, generations after the Bible was written. Did you guys know that? Because it'd be kind of hard for me to say, hey, turn to scroll number 15 and let's all look. You know, it'd be, it'd be rough. But if I could say, turn to Psalm 22, verse 1, everybody goes, okay, I got it. And we find the place. But in Jesus' day, they didn't have the chapters and verses. And so the way they noticed something or they reminded you of a verse, they'd give you the first phrase in that verse. It would be like if I said to you guys today, four score and seven years ago, our forefathers. And everybody in here would go, got it. I know exactly what he's talking about. But Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I don't think it's because God turned his back on his son. I think he's telling you, I don't have many words to give here on the cross but I do want to tell you what I'm feeling. Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of my anguish? My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer by night, and I find no rest. And by the way, remember, these are the words of David. He goes in between talking about himself and talking about the Messiah. It's very possible that David here was not talking about Jesus at all. It's very possible that David was talking about himself here. But then he switches. And we see how Jesus suffered for us. In verse 6 it says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they said. Let, him, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And you remember the New Testament story of the crucifixion? That's exactly what happened. Verse 11 goes on. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help me. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey, opening their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. And we know that that's one of the things that happens during the crucifixion. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of dust. And we know that that happened because on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Exactly what happens in the New Testament was predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament in Psalm 22. Don't ever become so accustomed to the story of the suffering of Jesus that you forget the amount of suffering that he endured on your behalf. When I was in Bible college, I took a class uh, on the resurrection narratives of Jesus. And so the class was all about every time that the Bible talked about the resurrection of Jesus, we were going to study those texts. And in order to do that, we had to start with, let's talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. And we came across two resources that were really helpful, one by Frederick Farrar called The Life of Christ, and another one called The Crucif 
crucifixion of Jesus by Dr. Truman Davis both describe the crucifixion. These are long quotes, but I do think that they're important to read. Frederick Farrar writes, The death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can give in terms of the horrible and the ghastly. Death by crucifixion invented by the Persians, embraced by the Romans, involved dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, public, public publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which the person could endure it, but stopping just short of the point where unconsciousness would bring some relief. And it was designed to keep the person conscious and suffering. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds, the arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pain of a burning, raging thirst. And all these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety, which made the prospect of death itself a delicious, delicious and exquisite release. But the person couldn't die. One thing is clear. First century executions were not like modern ones, for they did not seek a quick painless death, nor the preservation of any measure of dignity for the criminal. On the contrary, they sought an agonizing torture which completely humiliated the accused. It is important that we understand this, for it helps us to realize the suffering of Christ. In another book called The Crucifixion of Jesus, Dr. Truman Davis said, As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. And Jesus fights to raise himself up. So as he hangs there, the idea is that the person dies of suffocation. The person presses themselves up to get a breath of air and then release to, the, to release the pain of pulling on the nails. They let down and then up again and then down until finally the person has no strength left in them to get a breath of air and then fails again and suffocates. Friends, let it never be in doubt for your sins and mine, Jesus suffered. The famous Dutch artist Rembrandt did a painting of the crucifixion. And the focus of the painting is, of course, the Savior in the cross. But also, he painted the crowd gathered around to demonstrate that there were people there that were a part of this, that these individuals were a part of this crucifixion. But Rembrandt himself painted himself in the portrait and illuminated himself. This is one of 90 times that Rembrandt painted himself into one of his paintings. But I think this one's probably the most powerful. He did it to demonstrate that he himself was part of the crucifixion of Jesus. He himself was part of the reason why Jesus had to die. And by the way, this is a painting that every single one of us should also paint ourselves into. Because the Bible says it is for all of our sin that he died. He took our punishment upon him. He took our infirmities upon him. By his stripes we are healed. So don't ever forget. Don't ever become complacent about the suffering of Jesus Christ.
And do you all remember several years ago when a movie came out and at the end, <laughs> William Wallace was tortured and died? <laughs> you all remember that movie? As I watched that movie and came out of that scene where William Wallace died, there was a literal gasp within the crowd, and there was a woman who had leaned over onto her husband or boyfriend, and she was crying out loud, sobbing about what she had seen. And that scene in that movie really moved me because it was so powerful and so, um, so obvious that he died a painful way. But that movie didn't move me nearly as much as when I watched The Passion of the Christ. And for the first time, I had really kind of a real sense about what Jesus went through on the cross as Mel Gibson very vividly demonstrated the death of Jesus, the passion of Jesus, and his suffering. Friends, don't ever forget what Jesus did for you. But why? Why would he do it? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That is the punishment, that's the consequence of sin, that's God's justice being carried out. But then it says in Romans 6.23, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is grace and that is mercy that God loved you so much that he came down off of his throne in heaven. He humbled himself, he became a man, and he paid for our price on the cross. And John 3.16, which we all know well from the message paraphrase, says, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need to be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. And anyone who trusts in him is acquitted because Christ paid it all. And so in light of that, how do we respond to this gift? And, and in order to look into that. We're going to go right back to Psalm 22 at the very end of the passage, verse 27 through 31. And I'm just going to give you four ways that we respond, but here's what the verses say. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And here's how I think we respond. The first way is just by remembering what he's done. Remembering what he's done. Verse 27 says, all the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And that's the idea that why we come together here really is because, and why we take communion together. When we take communion, we're remembering Jesus Christ paid the price for us. He died for us. And in the, in the world of just chaos and so many voices, isn't it good just to come together and just spend some time every weekend and just go, God, help me just get my mind right, my mind focused on you for what you have done for us. You died for us. You suffered for us. And in the communion, when I take the juice, I'm going to remember your blood. And when I take that bread, I'm going to remember your body that was broken for me. And I just want to celebrate and remember that. That's why we do that. And then secondly, we submit to him. Verse 27 says, all the families of the nations will bow down before him. And, and that's the idea that just every day of your life, you just say with this attitude, God, I want to yield my life to you. 
not my will, but your will be done, God. Today, as I interact with people, as I make an influence on people, as I make a difference in this world, God, I want you to get the glory, and I'm just going to submit to you, and I want to have your kind of attitude, and I want to have your kind of focus, and I want to make your kind of impact, and I want to celebrate you, and I want to point people to you, and God, just in my life, I want to submit my life to you. The third thing we do is we worship. Verse 29 says, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. The Bible says in Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You either bow to it now or you bow to him later. But if you bow to him later at the end of this life, it'll be too late if you wait till Jesus Christ returns. But one day, every king, every performer, every actor, every person we idolize, Every knee will bow before the Lord. And what he's saying is, I want you to bow now. Don't wait. Worship. Come together. Be together here. That's why we come together on the weekend together too. It's not the only day we worship, but it's such an important day. We're celebrating with each other. We're getting arm in arm. We're like, it's rough out there. I know. It's tough out there. There's so many opinions and so many thoughts, and people are battling over everything. Let's come together, and let's remind each other in this huddle that we're all in this thing together. Go live the life. Go do it, because you can do it. You can make a difference in this world, and we're literally worshiping God together, reminding ourselves that we're not so big. We're not so great. God's the greatest. We're celebrating him, and we're just a part of his team. So we come together to be reminded of that. And we respond by telling other people about it. Verse 30 says, future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And our job is to proclaim what God has done. That's why we do what we do as a church. It is to encourage each other. It's to lift each other up. It's to say, hey, come on. Let's end this, be in this together. Let's live the kind of life that God wants us to live. And if you fall, I'm here to pick you up. And when I fall, you're here to pick me up. But we're also here to train you in righteousness. That's why we use so much scripture when we teach. It's not about my opinion. It's not about Josh's opinion. It's about what does the word of God say, about what truth is. And that's what we follow. And that's why right now, in the other part of the building and in Middletown, your kids are walking through the last steps of Jesus and they're going to the upper room and it looks a lot like an upper room and literally it is an upper room. It's in the preschool and they're up there and they're, they're like celebrating together, learning about what Jesus did for them and then they're going to the section of the cross and then they're learning about um, when Jesus rode in to the, to the city and they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and they're learning each one of these in the Garden of Gethsemane and in both locations, we're teaching your children that not just today but every weekend because we want them to know that the most important thing in this life is not what they accomplish, and it's not how good they were on the soccer field. It's all about Jesus and what he did for them. And I love where it says here that the final words of Jesus on the cross were, it is finished. And in this verse it says, he has done it. Same thing. Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. The mission is finished. Sin has been ransomed. Sin is finished. Guilt is finished. Satan is finished. Death is finished. Mission accomplished. And then the next phrase reads, with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And that is what we remember today. Some of you today are like, man, I believe in Jesus and I believe that he died, but it's really hard for me to accept that he died for me. It's really hard for me because I'm pretty bad, and I think his salvation is pretty good, 
But maybe it wasn't complete because maybe he saved everybody else. There's no way he can save me. And Anne Graham Lotz, the daughter of Billy Graham, one time talked about this. And she told of a time when a woman in Raleigh who, who was executed for murder, she became friends with when the lady was in prison. This lady had murdered her own mother. And Anne Graham Lotz in jail said the woman received Christ as Savior. And she said, she and I got to be friends. And before she died, she asked me for a reassurance of salvation because she wasn't sure because she thought her sin was pretty bad. And she said, Anne Graham Lotz said, did you ever go to the beach? And she said, yes, I did. Do you ever see the little holes that the sand crabs make? Yes. And over there is a bigger hole which a child dug with a shovel. And across the way are workers with large equipment dredging up huge holes. When the tide comes in, what happens to those holes? They are all filled in the same way. And in the same way, Jesus covers your sin. And whether or not today you all have small sins and tiny little things in your life, and, oh, I made a mistake here, I told a little white lie here, I, I, I thought a bad thought here, or maybe you guys, some of you guys have like a kind of a medium-sized sin hole, and you're like, yeah, that was pretty bad. I wish I could have taken that back. And some of you guys have some big, honking, bulldozer-sized sin holes in your life. Jesus Christ washes all that away. It doesn't matter how small or how big, the Bible doesn't distinguish. Jesus Christ's salvation and his suffering was complete and total forgiveness for all. Don't forget it. And so this week on Friday, when you come together at your home or your, at your place of work on Good Friday, don't just mow the lawn. Don't just mulch this week. Don't just sit on the sidelines of a baseball game. You remember what Jesus did for you. Remember the lengths at which he suffered for you. And then, on Sunday morning, we're going to celebrate the fact that he rose again. That death is defeated. That sin is taken care of. That guilt is washed away. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will celebrate on Friday that Jesus suffered and died and we will remember it. And we will celebrate on Sunday that our Savior Christ is risen again. And he gives every single person in this room and every single person around the room, uh, the world the opportunity to be, to, be, uh, to be clean, to be whole, to be forgiven and be renewed. And that's why you should be inviting people for next week too, by the way. That's why you should be telling people about what's going to happen in Middletown today, later this afternoon. Why? Because we desperately want people to know the lengths at which Jesus Christ gave his life for them. How much he loves them. God, we thank you so much that no matter our sin, that your grace is sufficient. That God, that you have given us your very best. And that you saved us. And that you defeated sin and you defeated death. And we celebrate with Martha where you told her in the New Testament that he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And we know, Jesus, that even when we face death, 
that, that we will not be paying for the sin of our life, that you've already taken care of that, that instead death will be a moment where we are ushered from this life to the next life, where you walk us into eternity. And, and the answer when we're asked the question, why should you be allowed into heaven? It will not be because we were so great. It will not be because we were so good or we had it all together. It will only be one answer and one only answer only. And that is that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, gave his very best for me. He suffered. He died. He took the punishment of sin upon him. And because of that, I am free. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your rest. Today, God, we celebrate that gift and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.